eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. In his previous book, our guest today explored how to maintain optimism in the face of the irrevocable changes that humans are forcing upon Earth. Everything from climate change to the loss of ancient forests to the extinction of large predators and more. Now, in his new book, he continues to explore coming to terms with changes that continue to threaten our Earth, looking to indigenous cultures for inspiration, resource management, and ultimately, how to tell a different story, one of coexistence with our shared resources and not depletion. Thank you so much, Alejandro Freed, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. It's great to be here. Well, the new book is Changing Tides, an ecologist's journey to make peace with the Anthropocene. Alejandro has over two decades inhabited the worlds of science, modern indigenous cultures, and client activism, an ecologist for First Nations of British Columbia's Central Coast, and adjunct assistant professor in the School of Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria, Freed works collaboratively with First Nations on the integration of traditional knowledge and Western science to advance conservation and revitalize indigenous control of their resources. His research experience has spanned conflicts between industrial development and terrestrial wildlife, the plight of endangered species, and the effects of overfishing on marine predators. Freed is also the author of his other book that we mentioned, A World for My Daughter. Check it all out on his website. That's Alejandro Freed Economy. Ecology.weebly.com and his first name spelled just like Alejandro. Last name is F R I D. Well, tell us a bit about your background and where you grew up and, and how you were drawn to the field of ecology, Alejandro. I grew up in Mexico City and, um, and I was, um, my parents were born there, but their parents came from Eastern Europe. So, um, uh, so I grew up uh, with uh, basically as the descendant of Jewish immigrants in the new in the Americas, um, and I finished high school in Mexico City, and then moved to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, with my family, and that's uh, where I got my higher higher education in ecology and. Uh, became really uh, interested in my local environment as well as the local uh, indigenous cultures that are part of this um, of this part of the world where I live and uh, for quite a few quite a long time I worked exclusively on the ecology side of things um, studying you know how basically how ecosystems tick how predators and prey relate to each other but uh, at the same time I knew that I was failing to connect with this very important part of the story that of what makes uh, an ecosystem, and that's people, especially people who have been living in place for very long periods of time, centuries and centuries and even more, as is the case with the indigenous peoples in, in uh, British Columbia. And uh, so I became interested in that, and about um, it's been about seven years that those two interests merged together in my current uh, position, in which I work as an ecologist with uh, a group of four indigenous nations, the Kirisuheihis, Luhok, Wikino, and Heltsuk. Uh, who work collaboratively in uh, fishery management and marine conservation. Well, the subtitle of your book uses a word that's not a common one. I don't think I've ever heard it, Anthropocene. So tell us about the meaning of that word and, and why it was important to use it for your new book, Changing Tides. So the Anthropocene is the new geologic epoch that we've um, entered very, very recently. And to... Um, 
put that in perspective, um, we just spent uh, the last 12,000 years or so in what's called the Holocene. And that's the geologic epoch that followed the, the, the retreat of the glaciers. And, but, and that probably would have lasted a lot longer, except that, uh, you know, large-scale human industrialization of the planet came along and started altering all sorts of important biogeochemical cycles, the phosphorus cycle, the nitrate cycles. Uh, we started doing nuclear testing in the 1950s. Uh, we started producing all these chemically-based products um, in the last, uh, you know, 70 to 80 years or so. And uh, all of this has left its signature in the structure of the Earth's uh, uh, geological features. And that is what... Um, has signals a change into a new geologic epoch in which uh, humans have became the dominant force affecting the geology of the Earth as well as the atmosphere. But um, I should rephrase that a little bit differently. It's not humans in general that have become a geologic force. It's a certain dominant human culture during a specific period of time that caused this such fundamental change to the Earth. But that doesn't mean that humans are destined to be only that. There are alternative ways of being in the world, which is what the book explores. Well, tell us a bit about your work as an ecologist for the First Nations of British Columbia's Central Coast. As I said, you integrate their traditional knowledge and and Western science, advancing conservation and revitalizing their control of their resources. what, What exactly does that entail? The main objective is to become, uh, for these First Nations, proactively involved in the management of their resources. So rather than having to react to external policies, as they did for, um, for a long time after uh, uh, colonization changed um, their whole way of being, uh, they said, okay, we've had enough of just taking in shocks. We're going to be proactive. We're going to uh, integrate new tools from science with our traditional knowledge to start working with the federal government in more constructive ways and uh, be able to influence um, how resources are managed in our, in our territories. Uh, as part of that, they created the Indigenous Resource Alliance about 10 years ago. And, uh, and, and that's uh, where I come in as their science coordinator and ecologist, something I've done for the last seven years. Mm-hmm. And just to give you some examples of uh, what we do that integrates both the scientific and the Indigenous traditional knowledge, uh, a big part of what's going on right now is the creation of a network of marine protected areas. For, um, that encompasses uh, the territories of these four nations as well as other areas adjacent to them. And uh, the way that this, that marine protected area network is being designed is by a combination of scientific surveys that tell us where scientists have figured out where certain species are and which are the hotspots for some combinations of species. But more important, there's what we call cultural conservation priority polygons. And these are areas that do not, may not necessarily have any scientific data to highlight their importance from, from a marine net, a protected area network perspective, but that have been put forward by the indigenous nations as saying, 
in a way that says this is where a traditional and long-term knowledge of the ecosystem tells us the area is very important from an ecological perspective, as well as by providing the traditional foods that sustain our culture. So it's one example of what we do. Well, one of the questions you pose in Changing Tides is whether or not humans are inherently destructive. So talk more about that and, and what kinds of answers have you found to that question? If we just look at the news, we just look at uh, some of the scientific data uh, that tells us the rate of extinctions, that tells us the rates of climate change and ocean acidification, it's not it's hard to resist the, the temptation to think we, you know, humans are really destructive. And, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, there are certain, uh, you know, cultural groups, uh, you know, during certain periods who have, that have been that way, but that doesn't mean that there's a single human nature that's always like that. So what I've been learning from my indigenous friends or, or and colleagues, it's largely, uh, about how their history provides um, an alternative view. Um, they've been, these uh, peoples have been in place for a very long time. Uh, archaeological evidence goes back to about 14,000 years in uh, some of the, one of the oldest villages in, within the territories of the, of the people I work with. And uh, some of the other archaeological sites show continuous occupation for about 7,000 years. Um, now, um, these, we're not talking about very, about very small numbers of people with, uh, you know, very little technology for harvesting resources. There was a really high density of people in these areas, uh, you know, in some of these inlets, uh, collectively through, you know, uh, related villages, there would have been up to 10,000 people living in place. And we're very sophisticated in fishing technologies, but over all these centuries, they are, harvesting resources without depleting them. The archaeological record corroborates that. The oral histories um, that have been passed over time talk about their stewardship practices um, that allow them to do that. And this is not just an old story. It's also a living story. Um, After a period of um, colonization in which uh, a lot of this knowledge was you know, put dormant by, um, you know, basically racist policies from the federal government. We've entered a new era in which, um, you know, society has become, uh, is is turning towards being less racist and allowing this indigenous knowledge to be revitalized. And the people I work with are taking real leadership and bringing that knowledge back up and incorporating into modern fishery management. So to me, that's an alternative uh, and plausible story of we, we can tell ourselves as humans what we can be. I mean, we can make a choice to not be a geologic force. We can make a choice to manage ourselves differently and uh, live more sustainably on this planet. Well, you write that while contemporary life has brought opportunities to the, the coastal cultures, it's brought a lot of challenges. So let's talk about some of those opportunities and challenges. I mean, you mentioned that uh, the peoples that you work with, that you say they had 10,000 people were living in there before colonization, and now there's less than 400. So I would imagine that's one of the, the challenges to be dealt with. The impact of epidemics was just tremendous. You know, what, this area that I mentioned that had 10,000 people there, uh, in the village that remains there, there's only 80 people. And, um, and some, of the, some other uh, folks who are part of that First Nation add up only, you know, living elsewhere, only about 300. 
Uh, collectively, uh, the people I work with had up to just under 4,000 people. But, um, uh, I mean, that is just a tiny fraction of what was there. Uh, so when you have that so much loss in population, uh, it's uh, a lot of knowledge is, uh, you know, kind of goes temporarily, in, you know, into a void and, and it has to be rebuilt. Fortunately, a lot of that knowledge did survive. Uh, some of it was captured by ethnographers in, uh, in their uh, traditional in their traditional stories that they recorded. And, uh, and, it's, and that's one source of the knowledge that's being recovered. But uh, there was enough elders that, um, you know, were able to hang, hang on to the knowledge to bring it back to the newer generations. So that's one of the challenges. Also, there's been uh, uh, over the last uh, 50 to 80 years, um, uh, a lot of industrial fisheries that have gone into uh, the indigenous territories and done uh, uh, quite a bit of damage on fish populations. That's certainly part of the challenges. Uh, the changes in the ocean from ocean warming um, are very notable. It's something that uh, uh, everybody I work with uh, notices. Now, in terms of opportunities, um, indigenous cultures are very, very adaptable. So they're not. They're very open to embracing new technologies, uh, new ways of uh, obtaining knowledge, such as science and uh, putting them to use in ways that's compar- compatible with their perspective. And, uh, and that adaptability is uh, w- what is creating opportunities uh, for them to go forward, despite all the challenges that I mentioned. Coming up, the conversation continues with Alejandro Freed discussing his new book, Changing Tides, an ecologist's journey to make peace with the Anthropocene. Thank you for listening, and please like iHub Radio on Facebook. I'm Charlie Dyer. Eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. We're talking about Alejandro Freed's new book, Changing Tides, an ecologist's journey to make peace with the Anthropocene. Talk a bit about the birth of your daughter and how you eventually changed your ideas about the the nostalgia for the earth that you were born into in the mid-1960s. My daughter was born in 2004, and uh, shortly before she was born, I did enter a period in which um, I was not feeling very uh, happy with the state of the planet and uh, our potential uh, future, and I did fall into a trap for a while of feeling that humans were inherently destructive. Now, when my daughter was born... um, I realized that that kind of nihilism wasn't going to get me anywhere that I wanted to be and that it certainly wasn't going to give her a good um, upbringing. She, you know, she didn't deserve to be brought by a negative father. She deserved to be brought into a world full of possibility. And that's where I decided to say, to start thinking, okay, so, um, you know, there's no going back to, you know, the time I was born in the mid-1960s, uh, you know, or, or even an earlier Earth in which uh, ecosystems were in better shape than they are now. So where do we go from here? So then I started embracing the concept of ecological resilience in which ecosystems can take a certain amount of change without losing their fundamental um, essence. And to understand this uh, notion of ecological resilience, it's good to think about the metaphor of a cup and a bowl inside of that cup. And think of a cup as the range of shocks that an ecosystem can take. 
and think of that metaphorical ball as the as the state of the ecosystem at any one time. So if we have, you know, a system that's being hit by fires or climate change or industrial fisheries, that ball is getting thrown around inside the cup, but it's staying inside of it, which is really important. It's never at the bottom of the cup for very long where things are most stable. It's dynamic. But uh, so, so that's the, what, um, you know, a, re- a resilient ecosystem is, and that's what we still have the opportunity to embrace, what we're trying to avoid is having that cup uh, be shocked so much that the, that the ball gets thrown out of it and lands somewhere outside the cup and turns into something from which it's, there's no return. So an example of that would be a forest that you know, goes through fire, goes through logging, goes through climate change to the point that it can regenerate back into, it, into what it was and turns into some more depauperate, simpler grassland or, or a... Or, or similar ecosystem. So that, that, that notion of ecological resilience is fundamental to the way I think now about where ecosystems might go despite all the changes we have brought. Talk about your trip in 2015 to Kitasu Bay and the work that you did there, Alejandro. I worked with uh, an indigenous elder called uh, Charlie Mason from the Kitasu Hay Hayes Band. And um, we, at that time, it was during herring season, when um, you have these very large numbers of, um, you know, sort of schooling herring going to this particular place, Kitesu Bay. And uh, Charlie and other uh, Kitesu Heihei's people focused that time on harvesting herring eggs. And to be out on the land, on the water, with uh, someone... Um, uh, harvesting traditional resources is, is really something quite magic. So we were we would go into this place and there would be like whales, um, sea lions, uh, you know, big flocks of seabirds, and they're all um, focusing on uh, on feeding on the herring. And at the same time, you have uh, Charlie and and uh, other people like him. Uh, collecting uh, kelp or uh, boughs from uh, hemlock trees, um, which is a type of conifer, and sinking them uh, attached to lines uh, to, you know, the bottom of some bays where uh, herring eggs uh, would accumulate over a few days. And then they would um, collect, uh, later collect, the boughs and uh, kelp with all the herring eggs attached. And that was their traditional harvest for this species. And, um, and, and it was just um, really uh, quite an experience. But also, uh, it gave me an example of uh, that, you know, more sustainable way of being. Uh, they are not harvesting the uh, adult herring that are about to uh, spawn, they're harvesting eggs that, of which very few would uh, survive predators, uh, survive harsh environmental conditions, and live long enough to reproduce. So harvesting the eggs is so much more sustainable than harvesting the adults that are about to reproduce. They've known that for a long time in their traditional knowledge, and that's something that ecologists have uh, also been able to describe in ways that... Um, uh, you know, you know, using more rigorous mathematical model, but they basically come to the same conclusion that uh, First Nations had about the more sustainable way to harvest these species.
Tell us a bit about the crab protest, how you got involved with that, and, and how some of your published research was actually going to be used as evidence in court. For several years, they had already been talking to the federal government about how Dungeness crab populations, which are a very important traditional food, had been declining, and how this coincided with um, the rise in uh, commercial fisheries and recreational fisheries for crab. And the federal government at the time was not um, paying much attention to this. So um, what the First Nations did is they said, okay, we're going to you know, do something proactive here. Under the traditional laws uh, that, that say that the hereditary chiefs who are responsible for the management and conservation of specific areas we're going to close, um, uh, you know, 10 specific bays to commercial and recreational harvest. So we're doing this on the traditional law. It's not, um, it's not legislated by the, by the Federal um, Fishery Management Agency. But they went and talked to commercial and recreational fisheries about what they were doing and why. And uh, people voluntarily agreed to comply. And then they said, okay, uh, they told me, we need you, Alejandro, to uh, turn this into an experiment. And uh, so uh, we went and selected 10 other sites for uh, fisheries could continue, and we monitored the, these sites by, uh, you know, doing systematic sampling that would tell us, tell us the relative abundances and sizes of crab. And we were able to show that within a period of about 10 months, uh, in the places that the hereditary chiefs had closed to commercial and recreational fisheries, um, the crabs, the adult male crabs, which are the legal ones for harvesting, became larger and more abundant, while in the areas that remained open to all fisheries, um, they uh, actually declined in size and in, and in abundance. And then the other uh, classes of crab that are not harvested did not change in either place. So this basically showed that experimentally that the commercial and recreational fisheries were uh, having an impact on crab populations. Well, Alejandro Freed is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The new book is Changing Tides, an ecologist's journey to make peace with the Anthropocene. Thank you so much for being here today on Conversations. Thank you. It's uh, great to have had the opportunity to talk to you. I'd like to know what you think of Conversations. Write me an email to charlie.dyer at ihubradio.com. Be sure to like iHub Radio on Facebook and tell all your friends about the digital difference in the Coachella Valley. Thank you for listening. I'm Charlie Dyer.